0: that's where we want to be. And that fitted in very well, that last um, hymn stroke carol, uh, when it was asking the question, who is he to whom they bring all the sick and suffering? And that is uh, pretty much fitting in with what we're going to do tonight. If I can turn your attention just to a couple of verses in Luke 4 and the verse 18 and 19 have the sneaking suspicion that when these pop up on screen, it'll not be Luke 4, because I reckon I put it in as Matthew 4, but there we go. A moment of truth will come up in a moment or two. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And it's the first time that the Lord is actually addressing people in public in the synagogue in Nazareth. And He tells the people why he came, and what his purpose is all about. And declares here, Luke 4, 18 and 19, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance unto the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach.'" the acceptable year of the Lord. And we'll just bow in a brief moment of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this day. We thank Thee for the Word of God that has gone forward from many a pulpit across our country and way beyond that. And we thank Thee for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ that has taken place in all of these areas. We've been singing about crowning Him, Lord of all, and we pray that even in the remainder of our night here, in our time of fellowshipping now around Thy Word, in the time of fellowship around supper later, that we will, in all that we do, be crowning the King of our life, crowning the Lord of all. Answer prayer, get glory to Thy name, and refresh our hearts. At the end, no doubt for many, of a tiring and busy day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk tonight about Charles Dickens' play. I don't know if you're into English or like English literature. I have left that a long time behind me, and I'm happy enough to do so. Although English, of course, is our language, so it's a wonderful language, and we should tell all the earth how wonderful English really is. But in his play, A Christmas Carol, well, that's a Christmas classic. That's been reimagined many times, many films, etc., are now being churned out because of that. It's been turned into a musical as well that they show on the West End every year without film, and for some people at least, it is usually The playing or the watching of a Christmas carol that kind of jump starts a festive feeling in their heart. don't know about you, but sometimes when you come to Christmas, it's kind of hard to get into the the spirit of it and the mood of it and get the joy of it. But there are certain triggers that people have, and whenever that trigger is pressed, then you feel right. Down the runway I go, I'm just about ready for Christmas now. Christmas Carol is a play about a mean-spirited and selfish old man, Ebenezer Scrooge, and he absolutely hates Christmas. But one cold Christmas Eve, Scrooge is unkind to everybody who's working for him. He then refuses when asked to give to charity, and after that he's rude to his nephew, and all the nephew did was invite him around to his house to share Christmas with him. When Scrooge gets home, he is visited by the ghost of his old business partner, that's Jacob Marley, and then by a succession of three ghosts, one after another, the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and of course, Christmas future. Now, he goes on these journeys led by these respective ghosts. And they teach him, as they take him through time, the error of his ways. And he wakes up, and on Christmas Day, there's a transformation that has taken place, and he's all excited. And he's going out with joy in a step, and he buys the biggest turkey in the shop for the Cratchit family, and the father in the family works for Scrooge, before going round to his nephew, spending the day with him, and he's absolutely rolling with the joy of Christmas. Now, our interest tonight is not so much in the play, of course, or the film, but the way in which it can draw our attention to the message and to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. His purpose to earth is given, and I said it'll come up as Matthew. It is Luke, as we have seen in the Bible reading, Luke four eighteen 18 and 19. And one of the things that Jesus says, I have been sent by the Father to do is to heal the brokenhearted, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised. And then again, he doubles down on the same message in Matthew 11, verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered, said unto them, go and show John again those things which ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, when I read… Look for and Matthew 11, the text that we've just brought to your attention, those for me shine the spotlight on one of the main characters in The Christmas Carol, and he's a little man by the name, little boy by the name of Tiny Tim. He's one of the sons of Scrooge's clerk, Bob Cratchit. And that opens up my first thought tonight, and that thought is, and I don't think you'll be quite expecting me to come down this line, but here's the line we're coming down tonight, disability. That's our first thought for tonight, disability. Tiny Tim walks with a crutch. He has his limbs supported, we're told, by an iron frame. But in spite of those physical difficulties and challenges that he has, he's a very positive and also a generous child. And he thinks of others, and because of that, he is very well loved by his own family. I was reading the comments of Jana Fry, and she said, the year my own daughter was diagnosed with disability, Tiny Tim captured my attention. I think Tiny Tim was the first person with a disability that I knew. And then she said he was followed by other characters in stories and movies, then by autobiographical writers. but. Tiny Tim was the first to teach me the worth and value found in a life that paradoxically becomes more precious because of an ability lost, and that is very important. An estimated 1.3 billion people in our world today, about 16% of the global population, have experienced, do experience, a significant disability. And as you look around you and you hear all of the various people helping out, I met a woman on Wednesday night over in London, and she had been given an MBE because of her work with autistic children, and she herself has some degree, a very small degree it appears, of autism herself. But the world has become, thankfully, more aware of the worth and the value of those who suffer from disabilities. And our world appears to be making some great efforts in removing barriers that are restricting the choices for disabled people. Now, when I go to the Word of God, what does the Bible say about disability? Well, the Bible tells me that God loves and cares for all that He has made without exception. Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9, the Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. It tells me as well that he shows the tenderness of a father towards his children. And I think of those wonderful verses in Psalm 103, 13, 14, like as a father pitieth his children, even so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our freedom, he remembereth that we are dust. Not only that, but coming closer again, becoming even more intimate with us, he participates in the suffering of his people. Many times in recent days when I've been visiting, say, in a hospital ward or where there's an issue of illness, I'll read from Isaiah 63, and in the verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and he bare them and he carried them all the days of old. By many times in our lives, suffering seems to be so unjust. I mean, why is it happening to me? Job surely should have been saying that in his day, because was it not out of proportion to everything that he'd done before, all of this suffering that had come his way? We're blind. So, uh, let me jiggle about a bit more, and there we go. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, let's hope uh, we don't flick in and out just uh, like a film that uh, comes and then just disappears again. Suffering seems so unjust, though it can be the very thing that drives us back to God. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 67, and the verse 71, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after affliction, have I kept thy word. And he said this, and it's quite astonishing. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes." I don't often quote the guy that I'm just about to quote. If you were in the east end of Belfast, you would know all about him. C.S. Lewis, yes, I know he was heretical on so many points, but on this particular issue, he deserves to be quoted because he's right. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our peeing. It is his megaphone to rise a deaf world. And sometimes when the message isn't getting through on any other level, then when pain comes in, affliction comes in, we are more responsive to the voice of God than we'd been before time. And in texts like 2 Corinthians 4:17, Romans 8 and verse 18, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For I reckon, Paul says again, that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So it's all about balancing weights and measures here. But what disability is not, what the Bible teaches gives disability a meaning that you'll not pick up out of all the other religions and the philosophies that are on the earth today, because disability, unlike what some Eastern religions would teach, disability is not karma. Our Lord, relates the story in John 9, verse 1 to 3, as he passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples, they were going down this particular line. He said, Master, who did sin? Must be a result of sin that he's suffering so much and blind from birth. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the answer is, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. It is not a case of karma. It is not a curse, as some communities still see it. And so we don't lose heart. And our outer self is wasting away day by day. You at your age don't feel like that. I at my age certainly do. We are wasting away the outer self, but the inner man is being renewed day by day, as the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Also, disabilities, they are not a hindrance to God's grace in our lives. We think of Paul, and he had a thorn in the flesh, and it was obviously something that annoyed him and grieved him and agitated him, and he prayed three times, Lord, take the thorn away give me deliverance from this affliction. But then he concluded, when I am weak, then am I strong. And Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And he learned about the grace of Christ in the middle and because of his affliction. The Bible also teaches disabled people are not untouchable. Why do I use that term? Well, a recent survey by Scope revealed that 67% of people confessed they are uncomfortable talking to disabled people. What did our Lord do? That woman with the hemorrhage who crept up behind him to touch the hem of his robe, she was healed, and he singled her out for special honor because of her faith. That's in Luke 8, verse 43 to 48. We have a man with a contagious skin disease, and he breaks the law. And that law was telling him, don't be going into the city. But into the city he comes, and he falls at Jesus' feet, and he pleads with Christ. Lord, if Thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And his immediate response from Christ, stretch out a hand, touch the man the law forbade him to touch, and declare, I will be thy clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. When God chose to become incarnate, and we're thinking about that at this time of year in the person of Christ, you'll find that his attitude towards disabled people was revolutionary in his day, and it's still revolutionary in our day. And yet, the sad fact is that despite certain advances in our helping those with disabilities, we live in a world where entire communities exterminate children with disabilities, even before the day when they are due to be born. We're talking about abortion. It's another reason why remembering Tiny Tim is very valuable. You've seen the quote there, came up on screen a moment or two ago. Scrooge's vision of a Christmas future showed him that the world won't be better without Tiny Tim's to decrease, get rid of the surplus population, as some people termed it, would be a loss to everyone. We'd all suffer because of that. And that Cratchit family gathered around the table eating their goose on Christmas Day. They lived a fuller life because they had Tiny Tim within the family not because they were gaining anything in material wealth by that, but they were giving of themselves to do the best they could for him, and they doubled their joy by sharing in somebody else's. And Scrooge actually found his own life enriched. When he provided for tiny Tim, actually, he gained in him a son. So, it's extremely sad to reflect on the fact that back last year, 2022, when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, it meant that that removed the constitutional right to an abortion. It ensured that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives would be saved. But while they were doing that in America, our British government over here pushed ahead with the enactment of a most radical abortion regime in our own country here in Northern Ireland. Westminster's enforced legislation means now that our province has the most liberal abortion law in the United Kingdom with abortion allowed without having to give a reason for it up to twelve weeks, and that enables, of course, sex-selective abortion it also effectively permits abortions to take place up to 24 weeks for any reason, and up to birth, if, listen to it, if that baby is deemed to have a disability. And even that limited effort that was engaged in, and I understand why they came from this particular angle, to give extra protections from abortion for those Onborn children with disabilities, the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill that was tabled by Paul Given, carried forward by Christopher Stalford, it attempted to remove a clause which allows onborn children with conditions such as Down syndrome, cleft palate, club foot, to be aborted beyond the 24-week limit period. That was voted down. That protection for those disabled persons in the womb, voted down by our own MLAs. Christopher Salford said at the time, it sent an awful message to the disabled. Opponents of the ban, like the Alliance MLA Paula Bradshaw said, it's a significant day for trusting women. Then there was that horrible experience of Heidi Croter a woman with Down syndrome, whose case was dismissed by three judges at the Court of Appeal on Friday, 25th of November, 2022, when she argued that if you're allowing terminations right up to birth, if the child in the womb has Down syndrome like me, that's discriminatory. That stigmatizes disabled people. She said she was absolutely distraught by the ruling, and the existing law felt In her mind, people like her should be extinct. That's horrendous. We can only pray and should campaign, of course, that our politicians who have voted for this will move away from being the heartless facilitators of the murder of the unborn to become earnest defenders of the right to live with or without disability. And I pray that what happened with the like of Wilberforce when he took his campaign to parliament, was defeated, took it back again, defeated, took it back again, kept plodding on until slavery was abolished at the highest level in our country that this issue, which is the slavery issue of our day, will be pushed until, like in the U.S., it is defeated, and may it be fully defeated maybe particularly at this time of year, coming to Christmas. It should be remembered that a baby in the womb was the first to rejoice at the news of Jesus. And we should think carefully about that. In Luke 1, verse 41 through 45, we read, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the holy ghost and she spake out with a loud voice for lo she said as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears the babe leaped in my womb for joy and this holy child Jesus he was born to help us with our defects and with our disabilities as Matthew 11:5 makes plain the blind received their sight the lame walk, the dead are raised up, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the poor of the gospel preach to them, and he was born so that from that cradle he could walk his way to the cross at Calvary and could address there that big issue of the deformity and depravity of our hearts due to sin. Matthew 1 and 21, "'She shall bring forth a son.'" And thou shalt call his name Jesus for, he shall save his people from their sins." Now, if Tiny Tim prompts us to get into the Bible, explore what it says about this area of disability, and where the coming of Christ fitted into the plan of God here, he also teaches us to look along the lines not only of disability, but design. Tiny Tim, despite his issues, lived with a very deep sense of purpose. After taking Tiny Tim to church on Christmas Day, Bob Cratchit said to his wife, he told me, coming home, that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made Liam Beggar's walk and blind men see. In other words, here he is, little lad, rising above the level of his own suffering, and he's hoping the people who saw him in church that day would think not of him, but of Jesus. Think and think again, think at a deeper level about that. And again, I quote Jana Fry, who said, Tiny Tim had it exactly right. How often when I look at my little girl, I remember the one who healed the sick and raised the dead. How often I remember that he blessed the little children. How often I remember that he wept with the pain of loss. How often I remember that he will set all things right one day. It's been a hard journey to wake up and find disability, has visited my own house. But, tiny Tim, my friend since childhood, reminds me. That this life is still full and vibrant and worth the living, and if we can live with even half his joy, maybe others will remember Jesus. Of course, the result of our Savior's birth was joy. Right back when John the Baptist was born, began to minister, it was said, projecting into the future what would happen under John's preaching, "'Thou shalt have joy and gladness.'" many shall rejoice at his birth, and he shall go before him, that is before Christ, to make a people prepared for the Lord. So, even looking at John, the forerunner of Jesus, the net result was going to be, you will be filled with joy. They looked at tiny Tim. He was hoping they would know joy in the Jesus who was looking after him. so, we have reason at this time of year to rejoice, because the king is coming into the world to save sinners and spread his joy. Look to the verse 10 and 11. Those unsuspecting shepherds, they're hearing the chorus of praise that we've been singing ever since. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We need to rejoice as well, because Christ has come to redeem and to rectify by His perfect redemption. Bring about the restoration, the renovation of all things, to bring joy to our hearts and fill up the joy that is in heaven. We rejoice as well, because in Romans 8 verse 21 to 23, we're told about we'll be coming from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Creation groaning under an intolerable burden of he today will one day be released, renovated, changed. We'll have the adoption, the Bible says, the redemption of our body. John says in Revelation 21, verse 2 to 4, that he saw the holy city coming down out of heaven, coming down from God. One of the results… God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, so there'll be no sorrow, nor crying, neither any more pain. The former things are passed away. One of our carols says, so no more let sins and sorrows grow. While we're in a battle today, and all around us for the few short decades we have in this life, we experience losses. Along the way, we endure pain, Ask God for grace to fix our eyes upon the joy that is ahead. If you're saved tonight, you have a reason to rejoice, because that means your names are written in heaven, Luke 10 and 20, and they'll never be blotted out of the register. Rejoice as well, because nothing in the world can take us away from the everlasting happiness we will have in Christ if we know him by grace and faith today rejoice as well. He was born, and he died to have a world of worship, and his intention is, I will build my church, and there will be people this part of the world, that part of the world, all across the world, coming from the east, west, south, and north, on that final day to give praise to him and enjoy him forever. Tiny Tim, he points us to disability. He points us to design. God has a purpose in everything. And then finally, he also directs us, and this isn't the most encouraging thought. He points us to death, his own death, certainly. And Scrooge, he contemplated what would happen whenever Tiny Tim would die, and he was overcome by the thought of Tiny Tim dying. But as I close tonight, I want you, rather than thinking of Tiny Tim's projected death, to consider his mother's death. Not in the novel, not in the play, but his real mother's death. You see, in real life, Charles Dickens, who wrote a Christmas Carol, Dickens had an older sister called Frances, and he loved her very much. She was an accomplished pianist and a professional singer trained in the Royal Academy of Music. In 1835, sang in a concert as a part of a group that included a man by the name of Henry Burnett, who studied at the academy as well, and France's later married Henry Burnett. The couple had two sons, Henry Augustus, born 1839, Charles Dickens Neller in 1841. That first child was known as Henry Junior. He was a disabled, a sickly child, and Most people believe that he was the inspiration, his nephew, for what Charles Dickens did when he introduced Tiny Tim to a Christmas carol. Now, his parents, Francis and Henry, they became very famous, toured the London theatres, were in big demand tremendous adulation and success followed. They were performing all the time to very enthusiastic audiences, just as I am speaking to a very enthusiastic audience tonight. I do get it. You have had a long day. I always said in Londonderry, don't know if i said it too many times down here in Martyrs, but young people are expected to listen to the most sermons ever, you know, you're meant to be at Bible class on Sunday morning, when you're the age for that, and then come to Sunday morning and sit there, and Sunday afternoon, maybe there's something else on, but Sunday night, evening service, and then you go to a youth rally, and you're still being preached, at and at ten past ten tonight, you're still listening to somebody preach to you. Hopefully, I'll not be much longer. But when we talk here about Henry Burnett and his wife, Frances. Henry was brought up in the gospel. He'd been taught it as a child, and he just couldn't wriggle away from it. And the couple, during all of their success, they moved to the city of Bath in England. And I'd recommend if you ever go to Bath, look out the church they went to, which was the church of a very famous preacher who does probably the best daily devotionals ever, you will read, William J., Percy Chapel is the church is now in the Pentecostal Church. It was Percy Chapel where William J. preached, and they called it Percy Chapel because he lived in Percy Place, so they named the church after the place where their pastor at the time was living. Henry's sitting under the ministry of William J., and he's feeling, you know what? My life is not right. I'm doing many things that are displeasing God, and he gave up the theater work. Now, his wife Frances she was sobered somewhat by the birth of their disabled son, but she still loved the high life and the glamour of popularity. She really couldn't let go of that, and she wanted to still be in the limelight. The family then moved to Manchester in search of other employment, and as she walked past the church one Sunday, Frances had a an urge that just came over her, I want to go into that church and hear what they're saying there. She listened to the preaching each week. She found, you know what, my life is so empty. And there's only one hope, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. And she wrote this letter to her pastor. She said, I had repeated prayer with my lips, but never from my heart. I seldom read the Word of God, and when I did, I read it as a task. I seemed to live as if this world were my home forever, entirely forgetting that I was merely a pilgrim wending my way to eternity. By degrees, my eyes were opened, and I saw with shame and confusion my utter worthlessness in the sight of God. And unless I came to Him through His dear Son, I could not be saved. I prayed that I might know the Lord Jesus, His power, the immensity of his love for us, sinful creatures, and dying for us on the cross. I prayed for faith in him. And you know something? God heard France's prayer. One evening in 1846, France's voice broke. Her doctor told her that she had tuberculosis, that she wasn't going to recover. The family moved out of Manchester back down to London— just to allow her to have the better treatment that she would get there. But she died two years later, on the 2nd of September, 1848, at the age of thirty-eight. She was buried in the dissenter section of the western side of Highgate Cemetery in London, and their son, Henry Junior, died soon after, the next year, in 1849, and is buried there along with his mother. In a letter dated the 5th of July, 1848, to his friend, John Forster, Charles Dickens described how he visited his sister who was dying of consumption. He said, she's greatly changed. I had a long interview with her today, alone, and when she expressed some wishes about her funeral and her being buried in on consecrated ground because the family were dissenters, I asked her whether she had any care or anxiety in the world. She said, no, none. It was hard to die at such a time of life. Of course, it is at 38, but she had no alarm, whatever, in the prospect of the change. She felt sure that we would meet again in a better world, and although they had said she might rally for a time, she didn't really wish it. She said, She was quite calm and happy, relied upon, and this is the phrase I absolutely love, relied upon the mediation of Christ and had no terror at all. Burnett had always been very good to her. They'd never quarreled. She was sorry to think of his going back to such a lonely home and was distressed about her children, but not painfully so. Charles Dickens and her husband were at her bedside whenever the end came. During the last moments of her life, she whispered those words of Scripture that we have in Isaiah 43 in verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And I'm thinking, is that not quite the way to die? Though in September 1848, She'd been planning. She talked to Charles about it. She'd been planning about what would happen after Christmas. But still she testified she had no care or anxiety in the world. No alarm whatever in the prospect of death. Was sure of going to a better world. And as we've noted, relied upon the mediation of Christ and had no terror at all to rely upon the mediation of Christ, what does that mean? Well, ever since the fall of humanity, we sinners have not been able to approach God without going through a mediator. In the Old Testament, they had the priests, and they pictured what a mediator would do, but they fell short. When one priest died, another priest comes along and replaces him, and that brought to an end the former priest's work of mediation. Those mediators had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, for they were sinners, which meant they couldn't finally deal with the problem of sin. Even the sacrifices they were offering were not ultimately effectual. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, Hebrews 10 and 4. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 that there is only one who truly fulfills the role of mediator between God and human beings, and that is the man, Christ, Jesus. There is one God, one mediator, between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. And to be that effective mediator, Jesus Christ, and this is all about Christmas, Jesus Christ must be truly God and truly man. For a mediator is a go-between, who can represent the interests of both parties. And as God, Christ brings divine justice and mercy to bear on our relationship with our Creator. And as man, He brings the perfect human obedience that we needed but never could have to be reconciled to God. And by dying as the sinless sacrifice for all who put their trust in Him, Christ provides for the forgiveness of sins without God passing by his just punishment on that sin. I'm closing with the famous lines of another carol, once in royal David city. And our eyes at last shall see him, through his own redeeming love for that child, so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above, and he leads his children on to the place where he is gone, not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him, but in heaven." Set at God's right hand on high, where like stars his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. And so we close where we started. Matthew eleven four 4-5. Jesus answered, saith unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So, if in the next number of days, you sit down through a session of a Christmas carol, and you see this little lad, tiny Tim, think of disability, but think of design, think of death, but think of all of that sweetened, all of it sweetened by the presence, the power, and the pardon of Jesus Christ who is our only hope. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for these young people gathered here tonight for their safe travel here. Pray that I will give them safe travel home. May there be great interaction between them. May there be good fellowship, one with the other. And we pray that they will encourage each other, those who know Thee in the Lord, those who don't know Christ. We pray that it will be this time that they will embrace Him, and enthrone Him as our Lord, and receive Him as their Savior. Come and answer prayer. Take our thanks for the good things, now provided upstairs for our bodily use, and may we eat and drink to Thy glory, and rejoice in Christ the great Mediator, and the one who sympathizes with us, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And we thank Thee for that. In Jesus' precious and blessed name we pray. Amen.